Welcome everyone to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Conchalillo. And before we get started, I want to thank all my listeners for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are executive producers, Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Ms. Aida, psychic and author of Who Do Cleansing Protection Magic, Binaural Production Engineer, Damian Keller, author of Sounds Good, Sounds Great, and monthly co-host, Jared Murphy, author of It's Not Aliens, It's Worse, It's Us. If you are interested in becoming a contributor to this podcast, go to my website, everythingimaginable2020.com, and you'll find a whole bunch of information there on how to contribute. And now, without further ado, our guest for today is Sherry O'Brien. She has written a book called Peaks and Valleys, Integrative Approaches for Recovering from Loss. Thank you for coming on today. And thank you for having me, Gary. So um, one of the things that I saw that they, they had sent me was um, about one of the chapters in your book, um, how it was almost a little bit uh, prophetic, maybe, would be the yeah, word. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote it, I did not expect uh, it to be so. But um, after everything we've gone through, uh, one of my clients had mentioned it. And I went back and revisited uh, the chapter myself, and I kind of just, you know, shook my head and thought, wow, this is kind of what we're going through right now. Not only the grieving in America, but the grieving in the entire world from all the shifts that we're going through and the losses, not only people who have um, loved ones who have died, but loss of how the world was prior to the pandemic, loss of how we thought things were going to be, <laughs> all, all of the different types of things. So, yes. So what, what had inspired you to write this chapter? Well, I had um, been doing workshops, and uh, the workshops that I usually do are for other uh, mental health professionals. And I... Um, myself went through various losses, our entire family went through losses, and the way that I was trained to assist people in the bereavement process didn't seem to work. And I went on a quest, and I tend to do that if I don't understand something or something isn't working, uh, not only professionally or privately, then I start doing research. And when I uh, started looking into the energetic piece of uh, loss, and what I mean by that is we look at the way that we hold our emotions, and um, there's something called epigenetics, which I won't go into the whole science of, but technically what we do is we bring in or can bring in our ancestors genetic components um, and patterns or uh, memories if you will and just in the genes and if something triggers it um, we may not even be aware of what that something is because it may be unconscious subconscious or an ancestral issue that our family didn't talk about and as i started doing more and more research 
and looking into all of the uh, catastrophic things that had happened in this country, for example, um, and in the world. The Holocaust obviously was a huge one. Um, the loss of American Indians and a variety of different huge uh, casualties from wars to other major events. I was looking at the various um, components of that because I also, um, I'm on a board of a Association of Comprehensive Energy Psychology and I'm not um, the education director. And I am looking, I am, I'm responsible for looking into the research people present when they're going to you know, present something and uh, the proposal has to be written a certain way. Well, I want to do the same thing for myself. So I'm gathering information and all of a sudden I realized the information that I was looking at was this mass consciousness of a variety of different things, which is what led me to go deeper into this um, chapter called The Grieving of America. But now I would put in parentheses, the world because of what's happened with the pandemic and everything else. But at this time, I was just focused on the, the major occurrences that had happened here in this country and the energetic components of it that we don't even know we carry around half the time. Mm -hmm. And to assist people with that, doing the energy, um, whether it's energy psychology or in any other type of modality, working with the body energies really helped myself and uh, my clients release the history of that, the ancestral um, gene pattern that may be there. Um, and one of the things I think I um, talked a little bit about in, in the chapter was a client had uh, come in for grief, but she really hadn't had a whole lot of losses. She wasn't sure why. And as we did some hypnotherapy and energy work, she found out she went back to a time where her ancestors had survived the Holocaust. However, they brought in a lot of the um, grief and the terror that had happened at, at, as a result of that. So we released that and we were uh, able to move forward with that. She still had the memory, but the energy there wasn't um, creating an impasse where she couldn't heal from it. Hmm. I know that's a lot of information quickly. <laughs> <laughs> it's, in it's interesting though, because I mean, there's, there's a lot there to talk about. Um, one of the things that, that has always bothered me about myself though is um, some of the bad traits that I have that were my father's and it drives me crazy. Like, like sometimes I catch myself acting like him or saying yes. something that he would say. And yes. it's not like he was the nicest guy in the world, you know, he, I mean, he yes. wasn't, you know, and I'm like, also I'm like, God, why am I being such a bastard now? You know, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I get angry and frustrated with myself mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. you're saying that's genetic. Part of it is, and it, it's part also the, um, there's a chapter in my book called um, Transforming the Inner Critic, too. The inner critic is that 
when it works properly, it wouldn't be called inner critic. It would be called the inner guide. And it's the, it's the part of us that can, you know, um, wreak havoc in our lives if it becomes that inner critic. And it often will sound like the parent. It'll have a very parental or some sort of authoritative um, component to it. But it also has the capacity to short circuit <laughs> the very thing that you want because it's incongruent with what it is you say you want. Now, in energy psychology, we call it a psychological reversal. It's incongruent with how you want to be or what you say you want. And so those unconscious, subconscious, uh, I would even call it ancestral um, or family patterns are Almost, if you think about like the computer, it's like the malware in the background <laughs> and it's creating all kinds of problems with the programming that you're trying to use because it's running in the background. And if we can learn how to transform that inner critic into the inner guide and, you know, that we oftentimes call it higher self, um, depending on your belief system then it can really help us get through things. But oftentimes that's what happens. It gets transitioned into a critic versus a guide. Wow. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you've ever heard Frank Zappa's Joe Garage, Joe's Garage, and he has like that, that inner critic always sort of pops up in between each song. Yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. And when you're dealing with... Um, Grief, for example, I hear this all the time from um, people who have lost loved ones. And um, I do a, a bereavement group for the cancer center that I work with. And their inner critic starts going through the, well, what if I had done this? What if we had done that? What if I, you know, a lot of what ifs. Uh, what if we went to a different hospital? Uh, all kinds of what ifs. And there's a, it's basically the protest phase. I go through, I really changed the whole grief. Um, I don't use the stages of grief because there's an implication. You go through that and you're done with it. And that means I'm talking about all kinds of grief, whether it be the loss of a relationship, a loss of a loved one, the loss of how you thought your life would be at a certain stage all of those things, the implication that you're going to go through these stages and somehow be done with it is, well, it's incorrect. And um, what I use is a phases, and I have this, uh, which you can't see it, but it, it's a circle in the sense that um, you can go through recovery as long as you're moving through those phases. And the protest phase is that phase where we're constantly questioning could have, would have, should have, what ifs, all those things that really are unanswerable. Mm -hmm. We're just not able to answer them. And it's part of that grief process oftentimes, even if it's the grief of not having the parent that you wish you could have had. What if I had a different parent? What if I had 
made a different choice in a relationship? What if there, I mean, it's endless. You could just hmm. continue <laughs> to question all that. <laughs> yeah. I don't really go through that. It's, it's interesting. Like I, I went through, you know, like, I go through like my own behaviors. I see like that behavior and I'm like, ah, <laughs> you know, but, um, the grief thing, um, is interesting because I lost like, you know, most of my family all pretty close together. And I was real active in their passing, you know, like I was taking care of them. I was there when he passed and stuff like mm -hmm. that. And um, what I was surprised was how long it took for me to even bounce back to being 100% functional. I would mm -hmm. say almost th for three years. I mean, yeah. I was still functioning, but it was like barely. And it was taking yes. every ounce of energy that I had just to get through a day. You know, not, yes. now like after three years, it's like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. you know, I'm, I'm pretty much back to normal. Um, but I was expecting it to be like six months. And now I feel, well, like, I feel like the <laughs> slow kid. No, you're not. And, <laughs> and that goes back to the stages of grief implication. I remember when I first started doing the bereavement group, um, some guy came in and he said, you know, it's been six months. When am I ever going to get on the last stage of this acceptance? And I, you know, luckily we had a whole group there and I kind of shook my head and I said, you know, the stages do not imply that you're going to go through it at a certain time and be over it. So give yourself, be, you know, be gentle with yourself, give yourself a break everybody grieves differently and if there's trauma involved and this is really overlooked there one of the reasons why i started this exploration and to assist myself and my family was my my sister's son um, died at the age of 21 of uh, bladder cancer and um it was a prolonged um, experience and she took care of him. He was in hospice for, I believe, 10 months and she took care of him. I was very close with him and my sister. And I watched as she seen him suffer day in and day out. And I don't know if this is what your experience was, but what I noticed was, um, in the DSM for mental health, it talks about post-traumatic stress disorder um, and acute stress disorder. And that is when, that happens when you or a loved one, um, it looks like you or a loved one is facing impending death and there isn't anything you can do to change it, then people become can become traumatized as a result of that and PTSD can be a part of the grief cycle. And I watched that with my sister because of the trauma that she held in her body that elongates the grieving process, which it does for almost everybody I've worked with. And unless you release it at, at what's called a somatic level, a physical level, either using uh, tapping on acupoints or um, subtle energy work or some form of assistance to help you release it from your body, 
it takes even longer to release. And grief is a process. Not everybody is going to grieve the same. There is some similarities, don't get me wrong, but the timing is not the same for every loss, nor is it for everybody the same. And, and that's what I think has been misrepresentative. Like you're supposed to be over it within a certain amount of time. A lot of times people have to jump right back into work and they don't really even have time to process the physical, the mental, emotional, spiritual components of grief. Hmm. Interesting. Because I remember when I was going through this, um, one of the things like my boss, I got, I, don't know, I got mad at work at a, a customer or something. So my boss made me go see a grief counselor at my job. And the grief counselor was like, well, yeah, there's the five stages. It'll take six months. And you know, I know. Just six months later, I was even more angry. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And, and that's what I'm saying, Gary. When I, I was trained, because I am a licensed clinical social worker and a mental health practitioner, and when I was trained in bereavement counseling, that is the way that part of of the training was almost like if it was a if it was past a specific time, then they started labeling it all kinds of things like complicated grief and just all kinds of variations of it. And um, it didn't feel right then. And then when I seen it happen to my family, um, just we were bombarded by right after my nephew died at the age of 21, my brother had committed suicide six months later. And mm. so the family was just, you know, we just, <laughs> we were in an upheaval. I mean, that's the best way that I can explain it. And as the mental health person, and the oldest of all my siblings, I was trying to figure out how to help and then also deal with my own. And I had, that's when I decided to go into this um, search for something better and more realistic because no, you, you shouldn't be a certain time in six months. <laughs> it isn't that, <laughs> yeah. It just isn't that kind of uh, experience. I, I think almost anybody that's lost anyone can tell you that. Uh, you know, suicide is a whole nother beast because it, it leaves people questioning, like, what was he thinking? What happened? You know, yeah. it, it's, it's totally, it's bizarre because like, I've experienced yeah. suicides too. And yeah. Man, like, like even to, I mean, it's never left me actually. Like, I've always been, you just always left questioning. Yeah. And there, there's a, a small chapter in my book about that because the people that are left behind, so to speak, that, that is when they are in that protest phase. So the phases, let me just say the, the phases are shock first and then the, the next phase is protest, disorganization, reorganization, recovery. And if you're going through them, if you're moving mm. through them, you are actually in recovery. 
That makes sense because I was yeah. stuck in that disorganization phase for yeah. about two years, and that's exactly yeah. what it, it. That's exactly what yeah. it felt like. Was yeah. like just the imminent inability to focus my energy yeah. on anything for. Yeah, wow. because especially if you take care of someone for an extended period of time, you develop a routine of that. So it's going to sound silly, but I mean, it's true. People have developed this routine. So not only do they miss their loved one and are grieving their loved one, but that routine that they had, there's a disruption there and they miss that. And that, that routine could be anything from, you know, every day we had lunch at a certain time and we, I took, you know, so-and-so for a walk or there's a, obviously a variety of ways that you can look at how people develop routines when they're helping take care of someone that's sick and, and dies. But even with this piece, going back to the suicide of my brother, what I found was I was always trying to help him, particularly our mental health system um, is not equipped to, if somebody has substance abuse problems, they don't go to the point of, well, what caused a person to start abusing a substance to begin with? He had gotten a wreck and, and was prescribed painkillers and, um, you know, after that, he, he became addicted. But there was a compulsion underneath that. The, the reason for that was the mental health piece of it, which my brother had had some issues with. And they don't oftentimes look at the mental health piece. They want to look just at the substance abuse. So part of my process was going through that protest phase. What if I had done this? What if I had done that? Maybe if I, you know, and all those what if questions again. But suicide also creates this, um, it's almost like that proverbial white elephant in the room. Nobody wants to talk about it because there's often shame about that. And it's a silent kind of, um, oftentimes it can be a silent kind of grieving because it was suicide. So I, I go into a little bit more detail in my book about it, but the process is it's the same except the experience in that protest phase is all about working through the shame piece of it and working through the, I mean, some people are embarrassed. Some people don't even want to say, you know, my son, my whoever committed suicide as mm -hmm. if there was something they did wrong. And so then they have to go through that process of it, process of it. And again, that goes down to working with the energies of um, the psychological reversals, the incongruent beliefs, the sometimes there can be subtle energies of the person left behind um, in a room or in a house or something like that because of the the type of death that it was. So then people have to work with that. And are they feeling it? Are they going crazy? Or those, all kinds of things like that. Hmm. That's so also that's interesting because yeah. 
after my parents passed away, I moved from New Jersey down to Alabama. And I've been here for three or four years. But next week, we're going back to visit. And one of the things that I kind of actually dread is having to go past my parents' house. Mm. Mm. When you think about going past your parents' house, what what is it about that 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 you are dreading, so to speak? I don't know. That was where my family was. That's where we gathered. That's where, that's where my my, my uh, you know the first thirty years of my life took place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so, is the dread that that you will well, remember um, that? Yeah, that I'll miss. Or, okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't so, like I don't like missing stuff. Yeah, I know. I I mean no one no one does. No one does. Sometimes what I encourage people to do though when they have those kinds of um challenging situations is and I write about this in the book too is is some sort of a ritual where they can find that um regardless of what it is they've lost we'll say the family where you grew up at Mm -hmm. that that sense of loss there and um every time you go by it 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 triggers that so creating a ritual of some sort um and really rituals they can be very simple i mean the most simple ritual that i've ever uh, done with someone is lighting a candle that's a ritual. It's the intention behind lighting that candle. So if you go by the place you grew up, the ritual might be that you knock on the door, ask if it's okay if you take a, something from the property and you put it in a, a container and you take it with you and you know you have that piece with you at all times. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just giving you ideas of how others have um, done when it, when it was something that involved a, a location or a piece of property. It might be just taking a picture of it as you go by and placing it somewhere safe and creating an intention that even though there's bittersweet memories there, you're going to choose to remember what it is you want to remember and put the other, you know, aside or something mm-hmm. like that. You're going to, you can create any kind of ritual you want. And the most powerful ones are the ones that you create, not someone else, but that you create. Mm. Yeah. It's weird though. Like how long the stuff stays with a person. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Because our memories are not, there is a misperception, and I, I now um, research is showing, but people believe the memories are all just in your brain. They're not. And we hold our memories in our bodies in a way that um, that physical sensation of something, whether if you smell something, for example, if if that smell is associated with some memory in childhood, that memory will come all the way back just, you know, quickly. If you hear, you were talking about music, Mm -hmm. if you hear certain songs, 
that you have a memory that you associate with something or it triggers a memory from a place that you might have went to when you heard the music, that memory will come back. So auditory, um, you know, any kind of kinesthetic or feelings sometimes uh, can be triggering a memory, but we hold it in our bodies. And that's why oftentimes it's really um, challenging for people unless they do some sort of a, again, it's called a somatic or a physical release because if it's memories that you want to release, sometimes you have to, almost always, I should say, you have to be able to get down to where they're at and reframe them. They call it memory reconsolidation. You, you go to the memory, you recognize it for what it was, and then you consolidate it and reframe it in the way that you want to remember it, in the way that you can mm-hmm. right now feel like you are in control of it mm-hmm. versus maybe when you were a child, you couldn't. Interesting. Um you know, one of the things um, that has helped me with grief, and, and this is what, you know, probably some of the stuff that's a little bit more out there, and you know, and I don't know how this, the um, psychology field really feels about it, but one of the things I've became curious about is um, near-death experiences. Mm-hmm. You know, because listening to people's stories about near-death experiences, and also you know, sort of having my own has given me a different perspective on what actually life is. And it also, you know, like you're talking about memories, like there's this past, present, and future. Yes. But even the existence of time can become questionable. Yes. And and when I start looking at things from from that point of view, I don't feel as bad because there's there's just too many possibilities. Yes, you're right. And... um, I would say for, well, speaking for myself, but but also for the organization that I belong to, um, energy psychology, there for a while we were looked at as, you know, the woo-woo out there people. Uh, We have a lot of research now that validates that tapping on acupuncture points can help release the chemicals in the brain that occur when someone's ruminating over and over again, or there's a sensation or a feeling that gets triggered and it can help dissipate that feeling and the ruminating thoughts. But we also have um, a lot of practitioners, myself included, that we look outside of the box in from a perspective of a spirituality, for example, not religion, mm-hmm. the spirituality in the sense of other dimensional kinds of things, things that are unexplainable. And what I know is um, oftentimes, and this is one of the things that um, happened to me as well as happened to some of the people that I work with in, in my private practice as well as my group, when we get some kind of sign from a loved one that has departed or when we get some kind of intuitive hit or um, insight, um, 
we don't discount that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we don't try to excuse it over. And, uh, you know, going back to my brother, the, the one that I think was um, one of the, I guess, most unexplainable things. Um, I was at his gravesite about a year after he died, and I was angry with him, and I was talking to him, and I'm, you know, saying how he was supposed to call me. We had a agreement that he would call me if he felt that way again, and he didn't, and I was having this conversation with him. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the graveyard, this country song, and he listened to country music, this country song, and I only heard fragments of it, and I, I can't tell you. I probably ought to look up and see if I can find what the song actually is, but that's not really meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. It's the words. It basically said, um, I'm okay. I'm a brand new man and a brand new light, and um, it just blared out as basically saying that I'm a brand new man in a brand new place and something else that I um, can't remember right offhand right now. But I looked at my husband because I thought I was, you know, hearing things. And he looked at me. We both had this kind of strange look on our face. And I said, did you hear that? And he said, oh, thank God, because I, you know, <laughs> I thought it was just me. And I said, yeah, and I think it was Larry telling us that he is in a brand new space and he's a brand new man and uh, he's in a good place now. And that was the message that I got. And when I was writing this book and I was trying to write about my nephew and all of the things that um, was transpiring and, and, you know, I became very tearful and I'm out on the patio and we, we're up in this house that's on a hill and the trees are way, we're kind of up there. And uh, I've never seen butterflies on this patio before, but all of a sudden this butterfly lands right on the paper that I was writing on. Now, what made that significant was a year before I did a butterfly release for him at this ceremony at the cancer center and when I didn't know this, but when you take the butterflies out of this little envelope, they're kind of like unconscious <laughs> and they have to wake up a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> and I was really familiar with what that butterfly looked like. And finally, you know, I let it let it go. And I'm sitting on my patio and the butterfly that had landed on that paper was the exact same kind. So I had, yes, I had a conversation with the butterfly. <laughs> <laughs> And it was one of the most beautiful ways. And then it was interesting because the butterfly, after we had this conversation, butterfly decides, okay, we're done now, gets up, flies away, and this other one joined it. And it just signified, you know, it, he's not alone, he's transitioned, and he's not in pain any longer. And I have stories after stories of my loved one's um, that they've shared that they have had experiences and my group members and my clients and others in ways that just kind of a multi-dimensional sensation of life that is 
unexplainable because you can't really measure it from science mm-hmm. perspective. You, you know, you can research it. There's been a research in near-death experiences, but it's something that's still kind of out there for a lot of people, and yet people know that it exists. Right. They have their own experiences. Like another weird thing that happened was uh, when my dad was passing, we had a baby monitor in the room with him so in case he was calling for help. And he was constantly having conversations with people who already departed. Yes, yes. And that is so common, too, because they are in that in-between space. Mm -hmm. They're in that place where, you know, I mean, psychics and clairvoyants or whatever you want to call them, oftentimes they can, um, some of them can describe going into that veil, if you will. Um, but I, I have seen that. I used to work in hospice and, uh, you know, that was one of the things that, um, people kind of understood, but yet they weren't sure about. And, um, I got to say when my, my father, um, he, uh, long story short, he was on life support. We had to take him off life support. And prior to that, one of the doctors kept saying, you know, something was wrong with his heart. And we knew he had a healthy heart, but he had Parkinson's and um, I believe he had a stroke. Uh, but it was it was his brain he hmm. went brain dead. He collapsed and uh, not enough oxygen to his brain. And, and he um, became immobile and on life support and my father did not want to go into a nursing home and um, one of the toughest things we had to do is take him off life support but I and, and people don't realize this when people are dying or comatose or in that unresponsive state they can still hear they can hear and interact with both worlds and the doctor started talking to me right there with my father. And I knew that. And I, I said, you know, I'm sorry, but we need to go outside because he can still hear us. Do you remember that? <laughs> I was just kind of, <laughs> I was in that kind of place where I was being angry because he was trying to tell me his heart wasn't going to make it. And why don't I put him on a, a do not resuscitate thing? And I, I, try, I was trying to explain that his heart was strong, but family has some processing to do and I'd let him know when we were ready to take him off life support in that process when we took him off life support I'm not kidding Gary it was like and you got to know my dad I thought when you go when you pull a person off life support and they no longer have oxygen and all of that I didn't think and and most people will say science and otherwise that you know they don't have too long to live they'll die shortly after that my father's heart started beating did not stop beating for over 45 minutes after he was taken off life support even though it looked like he wasn't breathing or any of that his heart kept pumping away And the doctors were in there going, I can't believe his heart. I can't believe his heart is still. 
And I just looked and smiled and I said, that's because he's letting you know it wasn't his heart. <laughs> that was bad. <laughs> As my father proving to you, his heart was fine. <laughs> it was his brain that went um, dead on him. And, and I know my father and I, that's what he did. He just showed him. Hmm. He, his heart kept beating, even though the rest of him, you know, and we, we all were there and we all, you know, told him he could leave and that we would be okay and all of that. But it, it was just my father's last attempt to, to show it wasn't my damn heart. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that some of um, the stigma that's associated with death, especially in our culture in America, um, I don't know. It's, it's just negative in a certain way. Like, um, you know, we people are sort of taught to fear it, to turn away from it, to deny that it actually happens. And um, when actually, you know, I mean, I mean, yeah, there was grief after my parents died and stuff. Yes. However, at the same time, for me, um, being with them as they passed was like a really – Yes, a spiritual almost like a, it was nice. Actually. It was a fantastic yes. experience to, yes. to be with them as they passed. Yes, yeah, and I I cannot imagine um, because as you know, with this pandemic, there were so many losses where people could not right. be yes. with their Awful. loved one, and that is going to be a type of um, grief that is definitely going to need some sort of. Um, energy psychology technique to, um, well, I shouldn't say definitely, but I think it, more likely there's going to be a lot of trauma that needs to be released and on a somatic level because of that process. And it often is difficult to be with a loved one when they're dying, but at the same time there can be that spiritual connection depending on, again, your your belief system that also helps you see that they are transitioning, uh, not ceasing to exist. And that's the way that I like to put it mm -hmm. because the transition piece of it helps people understand and know that energy is their energy, their, their spirit, whatever you want to call it, um, will always exists they're just trans it's transitioning its form so to speak kind of like the butterfly and um for a lot of people yes and it's not just this country gary but, but because obviously we're more familiar with it i you know years ago again when i studied and i really did a lot of research i was surprised i gotta tell you Years ago, death was just part of life mm -hmm. and uh, because we didn't live very long. And there's all kinds of history about, you know, literally people taking pictures with their loved one in the coffin. And, you know, it's just, you know, it was one <laughs> of the weirdest things. And it was even when when my um, when I was little, my grandmother, she had uh, already bought a plot, planned her funeral, so to speak. I mean, not the whole thing, but 
planned it out with a, a funeral home. And it was almost like buying uh, life insurance or investing in stock or something like that. It was a part of what people did. It was just that assumption that this is what you do and it's part of life. And then as I, and I don't, I'm not saying that it's the medical community's fault, but as people started living longer because of the medical advances and so forth, all of a sudden, death was looked at as something that you want to prevent. You, you don't want to go there. Yeah. And it's not um, looked upon as part of life. And oftentimes, it's not looked at as a transition. It's looked at as an end of life. Um, sometimes, obviously, it, you know, depending, again, on your belief system, there's a belief that you, you know, whether you go to heaven or another dimension or whatever that is, there's a part of that, but there's that sensation that people will share that um, when they've had these near death or interactions with their loved ones that have died, there's that sensation of continuity that we don't talk about a lot in general and it is you know it's not um no one wants to think about a horrific traumatic horrible death but at the same time death as part of life and that transition um uh, if we i think it's just my opinion if we kind of taught that from you know i don't know maybe in school or something um our religious experiences, mm. our spiritual experiences. I don't think it would be so um, shunned upon to see it as a, I don't know, a scary thing. I got to say, though, I think sometimes <laughs> this, again, this is just my belief, opinion. Sometimes um, some religious beliefs wanted us to be afraid of it so that we would do all the right things so that when we did die, we wouldn't go to hell, <laughs> you know, kind of that shaming. If you, if you don't, if you're not a good person, you're so they used it kind of as a, a manipulative uh, control kind of thing yeah. too. So there's all kinds of reasons for it, but that's happened in other countries as well. So I can only speak for who I've mm -hmm. worked with wow. and the history that I read about. Is there any place in psychology for things like mediums? It depends on the type of psychology. And what I say by that is when I, I don't, how do I want to put this? <laughs> um, your traditional psychology is very um, cognitive, behavioral, um, how the brain functions, how the brain can, in, in, uh, in fact, um, create illness, etc. Psychoneuroimmunology. Um, 
took me forever to be able to say that. <laughs> I can't say it. <laughs> how, how stress impacts our body and so forth. That's your, your um, traditional psychology um, views. But from an energetic, from, from energy psychology, and there are, energy psychology is a broad umbrella and under that, there are, um, you know, all kinds of things such as emotional freedom technique. That's a tapping technique. Um, thought field therapy is a tapping technique. The subtle energy therapies are working with the chakras and the aura. Or now that science can prove that the aura exists, it's called a biofilm. Same thing. <laughs> <laughs> and working with the subtle energies has lent itself to um, that intuitive kind of sense and the sensation of something other. And so then there have been a lot of um, people that I have met in, in the organization and presenters and attendees and so forth. They very much understand and welcome um, that belief of being able to connect with the other realms, the other dimensions and so forth. So I know that's not a direct answer because it's too complex within that field, the energy psychology field. It just depends on the person's practice. For me, I, a long time ago found out, um, and I, I really, <laughs> I I had this experience. I was doing hypnotherapy for years and people would go back to these terrible, I mean, past life regressions and experiences. And we would, I literally was trained on how to get people out of shock using cold or hot compresses on the body so they could feel their body and because they would disassociate it and we'd have to bring them back in and all of that. And I kept thinking, there's got to be a way where we don't re-traumatize them. And I remember I had done um, several other types of training, but I tried to stay with, I tried to hold the integrity of each training. If, if I were going to, if I was doing hypnotherapy, I tried to do it the way I was taught. I was doing the energy psychology modalities, the way I was taught, et cetera. And I remember working with someone who, was going through this ab reaction and I'm trying the best I can using just that modality. And I literally heard from somewhere else, get out of the way. <laughs> and I'm thinking, okay, now I've lost it. I'm hearing things. I'm hearing voices. And I just kind of sat there for a moment and it, I was directed by something to start using some of the tapping techniques and utilize some of the other techniques that I had um, already had learned, but it didn't feel right to integrate them. And all of a sudden we were able to resolve the issue and record time. The person came out of the ab reaction and we were able to do the reconsolidation. And um, all of a sudden I realized I can be guided on what's the best technique to use. I don't have to do it in its pure form. 
every technique in its pure form in order to best help my client. And so since that time, I have been open to any kind of guidance coming through to me in any kind of session, whether it's a sensation or a thought or a message, get out of the way (laughs) and let us work with it. Um, And I always, always ask for um, the client's um, highest good. And, um, you know, if the client believes in God, we use that term. If the client believes in angels, we'll we'll bring the angels in. If the client um, has no belief, then we talk about dimensions, multidimensional. We talk about um, from more of a scientific kind of, um, I mean, there's all kinds of ways depending on the person, but um, it it is one of the, the hardest things to do, but depending on the person, you can understand what will mean something to them. Physics, et cetera. Uh, you can pull something from somewhere and speak their language that they understand that there's more than just this reality. Mm-hmm. So with the tapping that you use, is that like NFT? EFT. That's right. EFT. It, sorry. Yeah. EFT. Yes. EFT is one. Um, and it's, it's the, um, it's the version where, um, to answer your question. Yes. And it's the short, how do I want to put it? It's the version that is most um, studied and most practical because you can teach a client how to use it outside of the office. So, you know, someone who's grieving, for example, they, and this happened to me, um, they may be in the store and all of a sudden a song comes on or something triggers the grief. And I don't want to just, you know, fall apart right there in the store. And I had literally, I myself went to the restroom and started doing the EFT tapping. So EFT is one form of the uh, energy psychology. It's one of the, um, I don't want to call it, I don't want to say easy or easier forms because it's very practical. Um, in my book, I have scripts of the EFT. I have the points um, and all of the modalities um, that I've been sharing and talking about is in the book. But in the book, there is an actual diagram of the acupoints that you tap on. There are scripts that are, um, they're generalized, obviously, but they're generalized in a way where you put in your own words. So even though I'm feeling anxious because I have a anniversary of a loved one's death coming up, um, I deeply and completely accept this part of me and they would tap on that and the anxiety goes down or whatever the feeling is. It may be anger. It could be sadness. It could be any of that, but you can get that experience of emotion to start titrating down as you tap and breathe. And that is probably one of the simpler forms of the tapping techniques. Hmm. I had interviewed, I don't remember the guy's name, but I think he was one of the uh, founders of EFT. And when I interviewed Gary him, Craig, Gary Craig is, um, is he wrote a book called bliss brain. 
Well, Gary Craig was is the one that originated it, but Nick Ortner has also um, done a lot of work with just your general public. I don't that particular and, book does not come to. Let me see if I can look up this guy's name. He's, <laughs> I don't know. He's going to come back and uh, and talk about it. And he his bliss 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 brain book is about like. A form of meditation that kind of gives you like the same effect as like smoking weed. Mm-hmm. Dawson Church. Oh, Dawson Church. Yeah, he's he has spoke at our um, conference several times. We may actually have him here. I don't know if it's next year or not, but uh, yes, Dawson Church is. He is one of the. Um, he and Gary and Nick. And they're they're one of the most I, I guess I would call it well known people in the field. But yes, Dawson knows all about the EFT um, and the tapping is if you want to. There's again, there's several kinds, but if you want to think about it, it can create an entrainment like meditation. So in other words, not only does it gradually bring whatever emotion down but you can get into an entrainment so i often do bilateral tapping so something called emdr you would use eye movement and um, basically what that does is it accesses both sides of the brain and it helps process whatever it is processing but if you do bilateral tapping which just simply means you just use both hands and and tap you know, off and on, off and on, off and on. Um, that can create an entrainment, and the entrainment can cause a form of like a meditative state, if you will. And then oftentimes when people uh, are able to, the energy comes down from whatever it is the unwanted feeling is, then you can put in and program what we call the positive statement. But it's the the old um, affirmations and so forth. They're great. Their affirmations are great. But if you have something like a psychological reversal or something that's incongruent with what it is you say, it's not there's no place for it to go. It blocks it. So the affirmations can't hold mm-hmm. or very rarely do they hold because there's no room for it but if you release that incongruent belief and that can be about anything then there's more there's space there's an opening to put in and program in what it is you want and science always says you don't leave a void so if we're doing any energy work and we release um energy from the body there's a a technique and i talk a little bit about it in the book too but basically you you go in and you gather up whatever energy that feels like and we'll say sadness since we're talking uh, about grief here and we put it in a container and you know we keep going through this process of releasing the container and coming back in but you want to bring in energy 
that is the exact opposite back and fill that void. So I always tell people to think of a color, maybe more than one or two colors. And usually people will come in with, you know, a variety of different colors, but color is a frequency and the frequency is higher than what it was they released. And so that helps again, fill the void that was created as a result of whatever they needed to let go of. Same thing happens when we lose a loved one. If, if we can feel like we're, we're able to fill the void and know that the memory will always be there of the person that we love. And we attach that memory to either memory books, create a box, create a uh, affirmation or a sensation of or color and we bring it in there's a sensation of being closer to that person you lost does that make sense it does it does are there any simple techniques of EFT that anybody could use like like a specific place just to tap Yes. And in, I mean, I say that, but it, it's best to look at a diagram and mm -hmm. in the, the book, like I, like I've seen people do it like under, under like temples, yeah. like, yes. And the temples are all about, um, anger and, uh, rage, but there's also something called a triple warmer meridian. So if you're tapping there and it, if you're tapping using your fingertips, you're not using needles mm -hmm. <laughs> where you have to fine tune it, you're more than likely going to get all three of those points. But the triple warmer point is all about that flight, fight, freeze, that, that whenever anybody is activated, oftentimes if something has been so traumatic, what happens is they freeze it, they go into shock, it gets stored in the body. And unless there's something that will release that, it's still in the body. So when you tap on the triple warmer, the side of the eyes, that is one way of working with it. But the key is, and what I found is, um, everybody processes differently. So if something, um, let's say, I'll just use an, an example of a client, um, well, several clients that I've had, you may think, well, you know, that was stress that they, they froze it in the body. We need to tap on the side of the eyes. That's your generalized point. But if there was something where they could not they weren't able to speak, they weren't able to articulate, they weren't able to, something, you know, wasn't able to be spoken and it gets stuck in the throat. Then you're looking at a whole different way of releasing. Then you're looking at the throat chakra that needs to be worked on. Not to say that tapping doesn't work, but where that person has held it in their body is really where you need to, to check. And I use, um, it's commonly referred to muscle testing, but we're not really testing the muscle. We're testing the energy or lack of the energy disruption to the muscle. And I will use that to find out what's off, which one goes weak when we're, when they're talking about something, 
if they talk about, you know, whatever trauma or loss or any other issue, if their throat chakra is off, then we need to work with the throat chakra. If the third eye is off, we need to work the third eye. If the crown is off, um, so it depends on the person. Tapping never hurts, unlike medication and other things. So you can tap and it can be very useful, but really fine tuning it, which is why I put a different, several different um, techniques in the book, because not everyone is going to hold that energy of grief, whatever kind it is, in the same way. And not every technique is going to work in the same way. Hmm. Can this also be used with people like that have like a, autism or down syndrome they have had i don't work with that population they have had some uh people working with um I'm, in fact i have a, a friend colleague that works with autism um spectrum and she's had a lot of success working with that um it's it's tweaked a little bit but she has found it very helpful in the tapping techniques, particularly because, again, remember me saying it can create an entrainment. Yeah. And oftentimes autism and people with developmental um, disorders, if they can find a certain rhythm or entrainment, that can help them feel safe and that can help release. So she's done a lot of... Um, research and uh, has presented several times um, and she has found it being very helpful for autism spectrum um, people. Interesting. Yeah. My wife used to work with autistic adults and they would give them like these wristbands and you'd pull in the wristbands and make them yes. kind of calm down. Yes. And yes. Um, like if you took the wristband away, they'd kind of just freak yes. out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I did briefly work uh, with uh, developmentally disabled folks, and um, there was there was a there's something about um, and and these poor individuals they were nonverbal, and um, some of them had um, difficulty even moving around and stuff. But there's something about any kind of a sensation of um, security mm -hmm. and that band wristband was one of the things mm -hmm. and it would remind them, you know, uh, kind of bring them back. I think personally, then I wasn't, I hadn't had all of the, uh, information and research and had not had all the training that I do now, but I think it's a way of, um, getting them back in the body, so to speak. A lot of people, and, and this is, um, commonly misunderstood a lot of people will disassociate and i'm not talking about disassociation in the extreme form where it used to be called multiple personality i'm mm -hmm. talking about that there's a part of um us that may um find it difficult for whatever reason, people that have been severely sexually abused or uh, physically abused as children, a part of them will disassociate. 
so they can tolerate the abuse. And that's the part of them that is the most fragile part of them. And so when we're working with people, um, whether it be developmentally disabled or not, oftentimes, like that little wristband, my belief is it helps people realize they need a part of them is gone and they need to bring that back. Just a, it's a reminder mm -hmm. um, of sorts. And when I'm working with people that have been severely abused and I'm working with these tapping techniques, I've done it for so long and going back to your question about, um, you know, intuitive or clairvoyance and medium and all of that, I can get a sense and feel when a person is just a part of them has disassociated. It's a sensation, but it's also when you see the person to, I don't know how to explain it. It's unexplainable, but I can sense it and I can kind of see it and bringing them back in the tapping will do that. Oftentimes the, the polarity, um, can shift and we need to change that a little bit too. Um, and there's some exercises in the book that talks about polarity. Um, and that's when literally the crown, instead of taking the energy in the crown and, and releasing it um, and it flowing through, the crown just closes up and pushes everything away because there's a sensation of not being safe when it actually does the opposite and you have to work on the crown. So there's so many variations. Um, but yes, it, the tapping can, uh, work with a, a variety of populations. Hmm. You mentioned like the disassociation with the body. Is that something that happens to everybody? Like I know like, even me sometimes, like I feel like I'm, I was just sort of just, a drift off in some weird direction and I need to pull myself back in. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's funny that you asked that Gary, because, um, my, my first answer would be yes, <laughs> <laughs> but I got to qualify that. Um, the disassociation from a diagnostic or a mental health, they would, they would say they wouldn't agree with me, I guess. Uh, to a certain extent, I think energy psychology folks would, but, and why I'm saying that is anytime we daydream, we're, we're a part of us is disassociated. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's literally, you know, you go to, I don't know, a favorite spot on the vacation <laughs> or whatever, wherever you, you know, or you may be thinking about something for whatever reason, there can be a part of us that disassociates and we're not fully present. And if you think about mindfulness, mindfulness and it, the reason why it, it really um, assists people and why it's become popular is we've multitasked ourselves to such extreme that a lot of us are having difficulty being fully present, especially with, and, and I'm grateful for technology, otherwise we wouldn't be having it in this call right now. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, from a technical aspect, from uh, electromagnetic energies and so forth, there is a tendency, I, I believe, for, 
for more of us to disassociate um, at least briefly and not be fully present because of the bombardment of all of the stimuli. Part of us just says, you know, I'm out of here. <laughs> I'm going to yeah. go on the beach for a minute. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like either that or like for me, sometimes I just get stuck. Like, I don't, I don't know. So if, like, if I'm in an uncomfortable position or somebody asks me a question and I don't want to answer it, I just sort of get stuck in, yeah. in like in that stuckness though. I can feel myself kind of separating myself from the situation because yes. I don't want to be there. Yes. Yeah. I, I think anytime, especially if something's uncomfortable for whatever reason, um, and that's the piece that um, if you think about it from a variety of different perspectives, but let's say um, people who are, have, going back to grief, um, it, it may be, and so I want to make sure and be clear because there's so many different kinds of grief out there that is unrecognized. Um, and the reason why I'm bringing this up is if we had a childhood that um, something happened and it really kind of felt like we lost our childhood, so to speak. And then um, we're being questioned about and, and a sibling or a parent may say, don't you remember? And you haven't got a clue of what they're talking about. You don't remember. And the reason why is part of you more than likely at that time felt uncomfortable in some way and disassociated. So that, that part of you didn't, what I would call, commit it to memory because of the discomfort. Mm -hmm. And if there's something that um, we have difficulty doing, some behavior, some activity, something that used to be a challenge and we were embarrassed because something happened in the school and then all of a sudden... 10, 15 years come, goes by and it comes back up, there's going to be a part <laughs> that's still feeling very um, fragile and may disassociate if, if presented. And it could be as simple as a question mm -hmm. that triggers the internal memory that you're not even actually thinking about because the body sensation of the memory is there, but you don't really know what triggered it yeah 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 it's weird <laughs> yeah and you know anytime we have these various losses one of my favorite sayings is because it's very it's applicable in almost all the work that i do i'll ask people to think about all the times and ways they felt uh, sad angry, abused, uh, whatever the situation is. But it, with the, a grief situation, I will ask people, um, well, I have a client who's really struggling with um, feeling like her life is going to mean something and that she's not a failure because when she was a child, she was constantly blamed for everything. It was all her fault. She was abused. 
And it was because there was something wrong with her, not the abuser, but her. And there was programming that there was something wrong with her. So anytime anybody triggers that, it brings up all the times and ways that she was told there was something wrong with her. A lot of people have all the times and ways that they were told they weren't good enough or they didn't do something good enough. Now, people are going to wonder, well, what the heck's that got to do with grief? Well, if you think about all the times and ways that you were told that you were not good enough or there's something wrong with you, there's a considerable amount of grief there about life, period. Life like you thought you would have or should have or life like you see your friends have, there's a grief place there that most people don't think about grief, but it's a huge piece of grief. And all the times and ways that you felt that gets triggered unless it's released. It'll all come up and it'll fill out a proportion unless it's released because it is. It's all the times and ways you felt like you weren't good enough, like something was wrong with you. And as you work with releasing that at a physical level, as well as mental and spiritual level, then you can better able see, well, you're better able to see when you're getting triggered. You say, oh, that's what, that's it. That's now I know mm. why I'm being triggered here. But before you get, unless you release some of that, you don't, you, you don't have the ability to see it because it brings us, you're so um, overwhelmed by it, you can't even see what it was that triggered you. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a lot to put together, though, for somebody. <laughs> it is. It is. And I, I will say, you know, I mean, the book is written in a general format, um, and I have put in there, you know, if there's if there's a lot, EFT um, can be done on its own, but if there's um, a lot of underlying feelings, I always encourage people to work with a therapist because there it can create. Um, an app reaction, if you will, or it can bring up a lot of issues. And most people aren't trained on how to work with that. And it's their own stuff. So sometimes it's good to have another person there. So even in the book, I have all these um, scripts dealing with a variety of different things and then a generalized um, script to use some of the um, techniques that I teach in the book. If there's something where it feels overwhelming, I highly encourage people to seek out someone that does um, that type of therapy. Mm -hmm. So for the time now, like with everything that's happening, with you know all the, the loss that has happened recently, and it's still happening, at least where I'm at, it's still happening quite a bit yes. now. Yeah. Um, like, like, what is the best, how, how, how should... How do people cope? Well, it, it looks different for everyone. But what I would say is, from a generalized perspective, um, and I have to remind myself of this all the time, and I teach this. 
because I have to say I've been um, I I have been very disappointed in the way that people respond and um, I don't know I and this is just my opinion Gary but I I have a feeling that history is going to look back at this and people are going to shake their head that why were we fighting over wearing a mask or vaccines and, you know, really attacking people when this is the time when people should be getting together and working together to eliminate um, this threat. And um, so what I have worked on is that grief about how I've seen, how, I, how my disappointment, the, the grief, the disappointment about how I think, because we all have our own opinions. Mine is not necessarily right, but we have to look at our own opinions. And instead of trying to justify those opinions, work on the disappointment of the um, discrepancy, the whatever, the violence, whatever you want to call it, it's, everybody's going to be different, um, the sadness, et cetera, that you might have with what's going on. But then also look at it from a collective consciousness place. And I wrote a little bit about this in, in my book, um, and, and that was in that chapter, The Grieving of America, where uh, Rupik, Rupik Sheldrake had wrote um, something about the morphic field that we create as a result of our thought patterns. Right. And um, we have a really <laughs> challenging morphic field right now that has been created. But there's a polarity there, I mean, around the world, but particularly in this country, I can only speak for this country, but around the world too. And that collective consciousness, that morphic field, that group think process, um, it's a challenge for most of us to, to be able to see clearly and put aside our opinions and our beliefs and our thoughts and work on the energy of the field of the collective consciousness. And um, I also mentioned uh, the, um, oh gosh, now I'm gonna forget the name. There's a, a project that they come together and they do a meditation, Global Coherence, I think it is, Global Coherence. They do a meditation and the meditation is setting the, um, stage for um, peace, wellness, they, they, they do, they work on that, instead of all of this division and all of this um, illness, and it isn't just the virus, it's the awareness of the, um, the difficulty people are having amongst themselves. It's brought that, I mean, it's always been there, but it's brought it up into uh, more awareness, I believe, certainly has for myself. Not that I didn't know that it was there, but I didn't know it was that big, <laughs> so to speak. 
I was watching something this morning, and I was really surprised. There was a guy from the CDC, and he was talking about, you know, the question was, like, well, how, how do you convince people to get vaccinated? And his answer, this is the first time I've ever heard this answer. His answer was like, well, most people in the United States have a seventh grade education. You know, so I, so we're trying to convince a bunch of seventh graders I know. to get in line. I know. And I was like, one, I didn't realize that it was that bad. Like that 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 was the national average of intelligence is seventh grade. Yeah. That means that most I, people in this country are not smart enough to listen to my podcast. I I guess one of the things I mean I did know that, but it it really, um, it's really become more apparent because of the conspiracy theories and everything else. Now, I suppose, I don't know, uh, but I suppose that there's always been conspiracy theories. Um, but now that we have the internet, <laughs> we have social media, we have the ability to communicate with people nonstop on all levels, etc. It creates the, um, it's like a Petri dish, if you will. And you put something that uh, maybe before might have just spread among certain uh, people. And now all of a sudden you're seeing it spread among other um, people that you wouldn't even think about. And, and people do not know how to do research. And I hated research when I was in college. <laughs> always research and statistics. I always thought, you know, I'm going to be talking to people. Why do I need research? But I did. I took it. And I don't, you know, I... I if I known then what I know now, I would have understood it much more um, because being in the education committee and having to look at research and why someone's proposal is valid to present whatever they say they're going to present gives me an idea of, okay, is this, is this, they're just saying it works or is what, what validity do they have? And so now when I go to anything, I question it. I don't, yes, you can Google anything, but you have to look for valid sources of whatever it is you're researching. And I think that's the problem. You can Google anything, you can read anything on social media, but you have to fact check and fact check it with a reliable source. So if you're looking for uh, medication or medical or anything like that, you look at reliable MD Anderson, National Institute of Health. You look at reliable sources. You don't Google it and go with the first thing that pops up. And that's that's the piece that I think um, have, has dumbed down America and maybe even some other countries as well. Um, you know, it's, it's one of the, um, for me, it's one of the things that I realized I was really grieving because of the 
it isn't just the disease we're fighting. We're fighting each other in some way. And that's sad. That's sad that somebody is going to get aggressive on an airplane because they've been asked to wear a mask. Um, I, I don't know. It's just one of those things. It's because there's a it bunch, a of, bunch of unruly seventh graders. <laughs> I know. You know what? I tell you what, my speaking of seventh graders, my grandson, when this first happened, um, you know, he was going someplace and I said, well, do you have a mask? And, and he, he said, oh, yeah. And I said, well, you know, just be careful because there's a lot of people that want to create, you know, havoc just because of mask wearing. And he's like, what? And I, I said, yeah, there's, you know, it's people are fighting over masks. And he said, why? It doesn't take away your freedom. It makes you more free. You can go anywhere you want to and not have to worry about getting sick or getting somebody else sick. And I looked at him. I said, Tristan, that's the first thing I've heard you say smart since you became a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Because it was just kind of a matter of fact, like, what? what? What's going on with that? And people have been convinced they're losing their freedom but they don't, how is that? How is that a loss? And that is a loss that they perceive. So that kind of loss needs to be worked at and challenged and looked at because there's something else that is triggering that, what I call that, that kind of energy, it has to be triggering something else, some other time or way that they felt like their rights were infringed upon. Um, But again, that's my opinion. I can't, Mm. you know, speak to it because everybody's different, but I think that is a huge loss. And that's the piece that I was talking about that group think and breaking that apart. And um, the only time we talk about paradigm shifts and the only time a paradigm shift usually occurs is when it gets to a breaking point and the old no longer can be sustained and then the paradigm shift will occur. Usually paradigm shifts don't occur because everybody agrees, yeah, it's time to make a change and we'll do so. Paradigm shifts are usually um, met with some kind of strife in some way uh, or another. I mean, the the whole... um, women's rights and and so forth all those were paradigm shifts voters rights etc all those are paradigm shifts there's a little bit about that in the book and the the overcoming that um mindset because it isn't this is the other thing that's more challenging it's the mass consciousness that entanglement so you're not only working on your own what I call micro or what's called micro, but you're also working on how that is, is um, tapped into or supported by whatever macro consensus that Mm -hmm. you are, you know, subscribing to. 
Do you think that that people who are not getting vaccinated and not wearing masks because they're being told to by leaders, it's almost like a suicide cult, like Jim Jones? Well, I don't think that, see, I don't think that they see it that way. I think that the problem is, and, and that goes back to the group think process, and when we talk about grieving and so forth, the problem is that loss of confidence in power, government, whatever you want to call it, science, etc. Um, there have been cases where pharmaceutical companies in the past have passed some sort of, um, you know, the drug got approval, etc. And down the road, something happened and, you know, they withdrew it or um, would only prescribe it under certain circumstances. So there's that piece of it. There's that nugget of it. And I've had a lot of people that are very holistic and they didn't want to get their kids vaccinated. And literally the vaccinations that the majority of uh, docs were giving kids they were giving him too many at once. So unlike myself, <laughs> as an older adult, when we got vaccinations, we got one at a time. We didn't get them all together. Yeah. And then the immune system didn't react in a haywire manner that um, they are, some of the vaccinations are, are causing um, or they believe are causing in some children. And I never will forget one of the um, integrative docs that I worked around said, well, you know, you have to say you want you want to get the healthy kind of vaccination. And I looked at her and I'm like, well, who knows that there's a difference? And why would they even say, give me the unhealthy one versus the healthy kind? <laughs> they, I mean, we're not taught enough about that. So there's that history. And then there was the awareness or um, I don't want to say awareness, but all of a sudden they um, people find out or found out that um, the government, city officials, etc, things were being kept. We didn't know everything. Um, things were not given things when our information was not given to us correctly, etc and uh, misinformation and all of that became, uh, we'll call it a paradigm. And the people that don't, that they believe they have, um, I guess the best way I can explain it, have to be vigilant about being, um, attacked by the government, um, whatever you want to call it, um, then they get into a whole nother field. And then there's the piece that people have difficulty with science. Um, they don't understand. <laughs> Again, I never really liked science that well in research, I have to say, but if something is being studied, the longer that it's studied, can, the more information you get can change the way that you look at 
whatever it is you're studying because you have more information. You mm -hmm. didn't have it before. And because of the information being adjusted based upon the science, people are now crying, well, why are they changing everything? Well, they're not changing it in as much as they've got more information now that they have to base their the facts on. The vaccination itself, Gary, it, it, I don't know why no one has talked about this, but yes, they created it quickly, but what they created out of had already been around and been used for cancer patients, for example, of targeting the immune system to fight um, certain kinds of cancer. And um, it, so it, what, it didn't just kind of happen. Right. They already had a, uh, a venue, if you will, I, I, that's not the right word, but um, they already had this information and science there. And then the world scientists got together, which is very rare, and they expedited it to focus on that specific virus versus looking at, you know, what whatever cancer they're going to uh, try to uh, focus on with the immuno uh, treatments. And so the science of the immuno treatments and vaccinations have been there, but not for COVID because we didn't have it. Hmm. But we, but, we, but we did that. have SARS, and COVID yeah. is very close to SARS. So, yes. So yeah. I'm sure they were been working on a SARS vaccine absolutely. for the last yeah. 10 years. Think, yeah. And, so and it's not absolutely just, new. Yeah. But because they've been misled, and now talk about, you know, again, that sense of, and I keep going back to a loss, they lost trust in whether it be government or science because of misinformation and rather than going out and researching it like you were saying there's a lot of people that choose not to educate themselves or choose to educate themselves on facebook or uh, some other social media <laughs> i'm not i'm not saying just facebook but other social media um because even there you've got to be careful i mean they the social medias use a, um, oh, if you look and talk about research, they use algorithms that will provide you, if you look into something, they'll provide you more of that something. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a whole. They're just going to keep feeding you the information that you yes. want because you're yes. going to consume it. Yes. Yes. I mean, there's a really scary documentary out about it social dilemma or something about that i can't remember um but basically they talk about that so if you believe literally if you believe and there are people out there that still believe this that the earth is flat and you go on to social media and you start looking into that the algorithms are going to keep giving you information to support that belief as well as Google or anything else. Mm -hmm. So you have to know how to create this discernment of if I'm going to research something, if I'm going to believe something, then I need to at least look into reputable sources. And um, 
I don't necessarily think QAnon is or anything like that is a reputable source. I, I'm sorry. I, I hate, I'm sorry. I, sorry. Maybe I shouldn't have. Uh, I, 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 I interviewed that, a QAnon guy and the interview was so, it's the only interview I never published that I did. Okay. So. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it is, it, it is sad, but see, that is the, um, talking about going back to that group think and the whole collective consciousness and how difficult it is to pull some way. Well, cults are, um, there's been a lot of studies about it, but cults are wonderful for cult leaders are wonderful for knowing exactly what it is that will pull people in that are um, subject to that kind of um, brainwashing and Mm -hmm. so forth. And it's sad and it's a form of loss. And when people actually, when that paradigm is shattered, there's a huge grief loss thing about it. And people don't understand that. It's like when people are suffering from addiction and they get clean and they go through recovery, there is a part of, grief, excuse me, that people have because they lost friends, connections, and we talked about routines, things Mm -hmm. like that. Even though they desire to get clean and and recover, they lose that piece of it. So they have to go through that whole grief process as well. Oh, yeah. Getting sober sucks. Yeah. Quitting cigarettes (laughs) sucks. Yeah. (laughs) Any any of those bad habits getting rid of them sucks. <laughs> and I don't think, um, and I used to work in the uh, substance abuse field. What I know is they didn't really address the grief about it. It was uh, perceived to be a, uh, you know, happy, this is what you want kind of thing. And it is. I'm not taking that piece away. If people can accomplish it, it is a, a an accomplishment and something to be proud of. But there's still a grief there mm-hmm. going through divorce, even though, you know, you if you whether you're the one that, <laughs> you know, initiate it or not, there's still some grief about oh, yeah. it and, and that change and what you thought your life was going to look like. And there's just so many different things. <laughs> been, through, that, been through all those things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I have, too. And that's why I said when I really started working with people in a way that um, I was trying to figure out the whole multifaceted level of this grief and loss thing and how we really hold it in our bodies energetically. I was not taught that. There, I, I didn't, I wasn't taught that. Yeah. Wow. This is interesting. Yeah. Um, thank you for being on today. And before we wrap this up, though, where can my listeners find you and find your book? Well, Peaks and Valleys is at uh, my publisher is Ozark Mountain uh, Publishing, and uh, you can go there. But it's also available at uh, on Amazon um, and uh, they can go there. And if they want to visit my website, Um, I created my name before I created the website. So it's a long, (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a long website address, but it's mind, body, spirit, inner, I-N-N-E-R hyphen, Grations, and that's a G-R-A-T-I-O-N-S. Um, but it's easier just put in Sherry O'Brien. Just Google your name and you'll find it. That's how I found it'll it. It'll pop up. Yeah, it'll pop up. But, but I'll also and, put it in the notes to this episode so people yeah, can find yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I've been around Gary for many years. I was before I thought about doing a website, so <laughs> I didn't think about the name. Uh, but yes, there and there's plenty of information and links on there. Um, there is the links I have been advised and I have not yet got to. It's on my list. The links to some of the CDs um, and uh, meditations that I mentioned in the book um, don't work. But those, if you put in the name of the meditation uh, and what I've been told is uh, you have an iTunes account or something, it pops up. So there's a couple of meditations that will take you through cleansing the various chakras. Um, and uh, there's one on that inner critic, which I would highly recommend for you to listen to. <laughs> the, 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 I thought it was the central scrutinizer. <laughs> This is the central scrutinizer. It it, it doesn't matter what you call it. It reminds me of the, and I don't know if you ever watched the Gremlins, but it reminds me of how cute they were when they first existed and somebody fed them after midnight and they turned into these Gremlin things. That's that visual that I get of the the, the, uh, inner critic. (laughs) That's for me. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on. And I you will post welcome. those links in the notes of this episode. And thank just you, hang Gary. on for one moment while I play the outro. Thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable. You can reach Gary at everythingimaginable2020.com or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com. You can also buy the book Enlightenment Guaranteed. It's the only book on the